Good morning, and let me welcome you again to Renaissance Church in this Advent season. Uh, my name is Christian. If you're here for the first time, welcome. It's good to be together with you. Uh, before I get into the message uh, for this morning, I want to tell you just one thing about my own Thanksgiving. Uh, do, do you love Thanksgiving? I do too. And this year was especially nice for me. Uh, I sat at a big table in the, the new place where my wife and, and kids and I live in Summit. And my parents were there. And my brother and his kids were there. And we were all together around that table. And my wife, who is a great cook, had been spending days preparing food. So mouth-watering, obviously. But she had put underneath our plates a little placemat. And it said on the top, I am thankful for. And she gave us some lines to write on. And during the meal, uh, when conversation died out, I began to write. For me, right away, it was family. And I, it was so fun. I wrote the name of each person around the table, and I got to write things that I was thankful for about each one of them. You ever do this? Think about your kids and what you're thankful for in them. And they're different from each other, right? So I was doing that. Uh, and then I thought about last week at Renaissance Church, and some of, a lot of you were here, uh, that I got to baptize people here. In fact, last year at this time, I met for the first time, almost a year ago, the man that I baptized in the first service. His name's Joe. On November 13th, I'd met him last year. And, and last year, Thanksgiving was not easy for me. I was in a hard place last year. I was trying to figure out where God would lead me. And here I ended up. And so on my place, Matt, I wrote, I'm thankful for my job. And I, I really am. I am. I'm thankful for you, for the people here that I've gotten to know, uh, for the people here that I don't know, and I'll tell you why. I'm thankful because I get to be in this place, the one who stands up each week and, and tries to do his best to help us all together see what God is really like. It's very uncommon for a person to have a job like that, and I'm really grateful for it. And I'm grateful for it because of what I believe about what happens when individuals and when a church all together sees what God is really like. Not what we wish God were like. Not what we've always imagined him to be like, but what he's really like. When that happens, everything changes. I want to tell you a story uh, that is, is sort of seared in my memory forever. It was from back in 2002. I got to read the Christmas story which Michelle just read for us, in front of a, of a group of about 75 high school students, and many of them had never heard that story before, ever. We were all crammed together in a friend's basement. Now, I wasn't a high school student then. <laughs> but I and some other friends who were Christians had begun to gather a group of students because we wanted to share with them what we believed about God. And so, around Christmas time, we, we cooked a great big meal for all these kids. And we were there in this basement. I want you to imagine a combination of your grandmother's basement and Applebee's pressed together. Right? Thrift couches and love seats, the finest garage sale art money can buy, uh, lamps hanging and standing, an eclectic gathering of rugs. We had a great big meal. After that, it was a spontaneous dance party. We moved to Feliz Navidad and classic 80s rock tunes. We built this city on, help me out, rock. Yes, exactly. That was like, give. okay. <laughs> Everyone gathered around the tree. 
And I opened the Bible and I told those young people, I said, hey, I'm going to read the story of Christmas. And I told them why. I said, I want you to listen because, because we believe this story is one of the most important stories because of what it tells us about what God is like. For Christians, and a lot of those kids were not, had no idea what they believed, but I said this, for Christians, this is amongst the most important stories. Listen, and I read it. Uh, when I got uh, going, I, I wish you could see the mystified looks on the faces of these kids. They were not there because they had to be. They wanted to be. And when I started to read about the angel and Joseph, they were stunned. There were a few boys uh, at the point where the angel says, you know, she's going to be found with a child. It will be from the Holy Spirit. They were like, yeah, right. But I went on and I read about the name Jesus. And then when I got to verse 23, the second name that the angel gives for the baby. Uh, it was remarkable. Here, th these are the words that I read uh, in verse 23. They shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When I got to that point, there was one girl who right in the middle, she could not hold in her shock any longer. She exclaimed, whoa, wait a minute, What? Everybody turned and looked at her and she said, do Christians believe that baby was God? Everybody turned to, to look at me to see what I would say. A baby in a manger, God? Is that what you believe? Now, I didn't say anything because the way she asked the question made me experience that story as if for the first time. And you know, it really struck me as odd in that moment too. Because I'd been in that basement with my own picture of what God was like. And then right beside that, through this story, is placed this stunning and strange and remarkable fact that the baby there in the manger is Emmanuel because there is God with us. I stood there for a long time. Uh, she followed up her question with an observation. It was beautiful. She said, and it really is the first time I'd ever seen her, by the way. That was the first time she'd ever come to one of our gatherings. She said, I'm not religious. I don't even know if I believe in God. But you'd think if God came to be with us, he would come in might with muscles and power and strength, with, with weapons in one hand and lightning bolts in the other. But as a baby, the most vulnerable and approachable and delicate thing in the whole world. I was totally, in that moment, engulfed in, in this picture of the God who I'd grown up believing in, the one who created the universe and everything in it, the one who held the planets in his hands and the stars in motion, who knew everything that was happening in my life and cared, the great God up there. And suddenly I was picturing that image of God that was in my mind right beside the baby there in the manger. And I was standing there silent thinking, what if God did this? Her question uh, made it very plain to me, and I, I hadn't thought of it until then, that even people who don't believe in God, they have a very strong image in their mind of what he would be like if he were real. Do you know this? 
And many people that you know who say, well, I don't really believe in God, they have in their mind a picture of the God in whom they don't believe. And that was in her mind too. That's why she was so stunned to imagine that God could be a baby. So I want to ask you this, and I want to start here with you in this Advent series. I want you to think for a moment, where do our ideas about what God is like actually come from? If they can be shocked and stunned by what we read here, where do they really come from? Uh, There have been many wise and keen observers of humanity through the ages who've asked this question, where do people's ideas of God come from? And many have noted that often it appears as if God didn't make man. Man made God. Look up here at this quote. In the beginning, God created man in his own image and man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. (laughs) Voltaire uh, said this. Uh, Mark Twain said something like this. George Bernard Shaw is apparently one who said this. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Frank Wedekin. I could go on. The quote has been attributed to so many because of how it captures something that seems to be true when a person steps back and looks at the way people and large groups of them often think about God. It is that often it looks like rather than being the creation of God, man is the creator of God. That man gets together and comprises a picture of God that serves his best interests, that either is a projection of his own wishes onto the divine, or at worst, a tool he crafts to oppress and keep down the many for the benefit of of the few. You've heard of a man named Karl Marx, haven't you? You know this phrase, religion is the opiate of the masses. Marx was an observer who noticed the despicable oppression under which so many labored day after day. The heartless nature of the world, the soulless condition of workers, and beneath it, he believed he discerned a particular picture of God that the minority had crafted in order to keep the majority under their own control. A vision of God which numbed pain, stimulated loyalty, promised happiness later on, quelled change by exalting weakness and reinforcing the power of the few over the masses. The opiate of the people. Marx wrote, man lives in a veil of tears of which religion is the halo. Merry Christmas. It's true when we step back and observe how institutions have used the idea of God to oppress and ruin the lives of many that history gives us too many examples of how this happens. And we might, we might gather here on a Sunday in our church and think it's so good that we're not like everybody else out there. But do you know that personally and collectively, we kind of do the same thing? That is, we kind of work at making an image of God that looks more like us individually or us all together than anything we find here in the stories in the Bible. A God who is on our side. 
A God who fits with the ethical issues that we are most interested in. A God who, in our denomination, let's say, and this is one place where it happens, a God who enables us to draw lines around our particular way of understanding the Bible and religious things that are important so that we can reject those who disagree with us in the church down the road. Or a God who is the one who believes like me and all of my friends who dislikes the people that we all dislike and is happy about the people who we find comfort in. And that's our God. He is the one that we craft in our own image so that we have a God who makes us feel good, who only wants us to be good in the way that we think good is good and to avoid the things which we've decided are bad. A God who is on our side against everyone else without paying attention to it, the truth about us even in this place is that through a combination of our own sentimentality in our hearts and our own uh, speculation, we'll craft an image of God that meets what we think and what we wish were true more than who God really is. And then when someone who's never heard of God before asks a question like that girl did in the basement, is God really like this? God was born as a baby? We find ourselves standing beside the picture of God which we meet here in the story of Christmas with our own image of what God is like and maybe the two don't match. Maybe you, and I know I've done this, maybe we've crafted our own opiate. And you know the thing about opiates is that they make you feel better for a little while but they're really bad for you. And it's just the same with our own creation when we make God in our image. I mean, let me be very specific. That girl there, well, her image of God was that if he were real, he must be a warrior with lightning bolts in his hands. And maybe she and maybe some of us here have learned to picture God like a cosmic policeman up there in heaven watching over us to make sure that we don't break the rules. And then, in our minds, the most important thing is getting everything exactly right. We find a church where everything that is believed fits exactly with the way we believe, and we're on the lookout always for mistakes. We become a kind of group that's turned in on ourselves, and when we look at other churches, it's only to judge them where they're wrong. When we look at other people around us, oh, we're experts in judging where they're making mistakes because it's the most important thing to us because of how we've made God in the image of this cosmic rule keeper. And on the outside, we may look great. But everyone who sees God like this on the inside knows that they're not perfect. And so day after day, we go on afraid that God will finally see who we really are. And we keep our distance on the inside because God's terrifying and scary. And we live our lives apart from him and apart from everyone else as we manage a false image. You see that this is a drug which kills us, this image of God. Maybe that's not you. Maybe you don't see God like the cosmic rule keeper. Maybe for you, it's like the great big Santa Claus in the sky. You know what I mean? You, you've heard that song, Here Comes Santa Claus. Listen to that the next time you hear it and think, how many people think about God like that? Right? He, he knows that when you've been good or bad, you better be good for goodness sake. Right? Why? Because otherwise you won't get any gifts. And we think about God like this, some of us, Without taking care, we imagine that God's up there with a list 
And every holiday season, we start paying attention to our behavior again so that we can be good enough to be on God's good list. Why? So that we can get something from him. And so God is like a combination of Santa Claus and a great big cosmic vending machine. The only time we come to him is with our lists of what we want. And they look an awful lot like a child's Christmas list. And our relationship with God becomes about getting something from him based on what we think would be good for us. And all the while... All the while we desire trinkets and toys that are utterly worthless in the scheme of things, when God himself is waiting for us to come and develop a relationship with the one who is our father in heaven, not Santa Claus, but the real and true God. And this picture keeps us away from him. Or maybe, and this is one that I think in our own day may be the most threatening image that a lot of people have, maybe the mess in the world has made us imagine that God's something like an absentee landlord. Do you know what I mean by that? He got the world going. He built it. But now he's retreated and just stays at a distance while the whole thing breaks down day after day, year after year. The roof is leaking. The heat doesn't work. But what does God have to do with it? Nothing. He's just off at a distance like a landlord who never comes to fix the roof or to make sure the heat is mended so it can be warm. And with this image of God in our minds, well, we go on day by day without much care for him because he's not really involved in the world anyway. And so we can keep our distance and go on through life in an ordinary way, picturing God just this distant, not very interested landlord. What if none of those things are what God is like? And what if... What if that girl, when she uh, lifted her question, what if her shocking uh, understanding of what was revealed about God is what God is really like? Think about that for a moment. What if God is there in the manger, that baby there, that vulnerable, delicate, approachable infant is God? And that's what God is like. Look, Christians believe this, that the scriptures uniquely reveal for us what God is like. That if we want to know about ultimate questions, that we can come with our minds open and also our minds sharply focused and pay close attention and see what the scriptures have to say about what God is like. If we do that, we believe that, that God's identity will be revealed. And, and for us, and for me personally at Christmas time, it was one of my favorite times because here we gather together around the most startling and shocking of stories. And there we, we are met with this strange claim that God is with us as a baby. Now let's look at, at those words that Michelle read, which I read uh, all those years ago together. Let's look at them for a moment. Uh, did you notice that as they were read, that the angel gave two names for the baby. Did anyone notice that? Jesus and Emmanuel. Why, why didn't, why, did, did Joseph have to pick at the end and choose Jesus because it sounded better than Emmanuel? It's a good question. Uh, the answer comes when we know the culture in which this story was told. I want you to look with me first at verse 21. This is the first place where the angel says something about the name of the child. There we read, she will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. In the century in which this story took place, names were different than they are in our own time. For us, 
We pick a name that sounds good, that, that we have some positive associations with, and that's how we name a child. Not so back then. In, in, in Jesus' day, a name was more uh, than an indicator of identity. It was a marker of the person's character and mission in life. Names meant something. And when they were given, they were given in such a way as to say, here is what is essentially true about this child. Here's what will happen in this child's life, or at least the parents would put their wishes into that name. Let's start with the name Jesus. In Greek, which is the language in which the New Testament was written, it's the word Jesus. Jesus is a Hellenized form of a Hebrew name, which we know as Joshua, and it is the word Yeshua. It's, it's, it's some words pressed together from the old language of God's people from Hebrew. It is the word uh, uh, Yehoshua put together uh, with the, the very simple and, and profound singular verb saves. Uh, you may know the story of Moses. When, when God was encountering Moses in the bush that burned, if you don't know this story, it's remarkable. Moses asked, what's your name? And from the flames, the voice of God comes and says, my name is, and in Hebrew, Yahweh. And now, when this baby Jesus is born, the angel tells Joseph he will be called Yeshua, which is together two words, God, Yahweh, saves that's the name of the baby. That is the essence and the mission of the child we meet when we first open the New Testament and come to the place where we say, what is God like? Here, this baby in these two words tells us what God is like. God saves. These two words tell us about the essence and the mission of the one who is born. There is in the manger God. Why? So that he can save. What is God like? God comes close. Why? To save. Maybe you don't feel like you need saving. I'm not going to argue with you this morning and convince you that you do, but you do. <laughs> Many of us are ready to admit that, and we need saving in all kinds of ways, but here the story tells us what is God like? God comes to save. Now, just so there's no ambiguity about the identity of this child, the angel goes on to say another name. And this name is connected with the ancient prophecies of the people of God from ages back. The hope down through the generations had been that one day God would come and save. And so in verse 23, the angel says, as it had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, which in itself is remarkable that a virgin would conceive. God is present in a mysterious way, but even more astounding is what comes next. They shall name him, that means his essence and his very mission and being shall be captured in this moniker, Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Emmanuel literally means the with us L. And the people of God in their scriptures had uh, various names for God. Elohim was one of those names, a word which captured especially the power and might and magnificence of the divine, El. It's all over the Old Testament and the Hebrew scriptures. Here in the story that we read when we first come to the New Testament is this claim that this is the with us L, 
God with us. That's why the angel says very plainly and explains the name and the meaning Emmanuel, that it is to be called Emmanuel, this child, because God is with us. God is with us here in this baby. If that's true, and listen, maybe you're not ready to believe that, but maybe you're wondering and you're, you are a skeptic. Good. You're a person who uses your mind and comes and says, I want to see and I want to know before I give myself to something this big. Good. You should do that. You should know what is at the heart of the Christian's belief before you make a decision to reject it or accept it. Here it is, that this baby in the manger is God with us. Why he has come to save? Why save? To save us from our enemies? No, not first of all our enemies out there, but if you notice, Jesus was called God saves because he will come to save his people from their sins. And that means to save them from their own worst enemies themselves. First. This is God. What if this is God here? What if God is not, is not the, the, the cosmic rule enforcer, first of all, or, or the, the dispenser of gifts to those who've made themselves good enough, or the landlord is way, way far away? What if instead he's descended all the way down to the grimiest, dirtiest, lowliest place imaginable to be born there for, from a peasant girl, a no-name family in a tiny little village, what if that's God? Now that girl, when she asked me that evening about whether Christians believed this or not, and I stood there in stunned silence waiting, uh, when her question drew me into the same surprised place where she was, and when I saw myself with my image of God beside this image, it almost undid me. Because I imagined and I believe this, that when God did that for the world, he did it for me. That here is the God who exalts himself by becoming low. When she finished her comments and it was time for me to finally answer, I spoke up and I said to her, yes, Christians do believe that that baby there born to that girl is God himself. Now all of, this, all of the kids there were silent it was that heavy silence where there's lots of people listening all at once. Christians believe that God himself came near. And this is the first story that we find in the New Testament because it captures the most important thing about God, I told her and everyone else there, which is that the world that God loved, which has been thrown into such disarray and chaos. And listen, it was very shortly after 9-11 when I was talking to these kids, so they already knew too soon how messed up the world was. That God was not okay staying far away from that world, but instead in Jesus, God himself became a baby and God stooped this low to save. To save us from ourselves, to straighten out this world, to invite us into his own presence so that he could be approachable, so that we could come near to him, so that he could be vulnerable, so our affection could be for him as my affection is for an infant when I see a little one and I want to hold her or him. Yeah, Christians believe that Jesus was born a man, yes, but divine also. That he grew up and he lived a real life and he lived a life where he was rejected by his friends, where he knew suffering in every possible way, where his own religious community rejected him and the ones he tried to save became his enemies and they nailed him to a cross where he died the humiliating death of a criminal alone, abandoned even by the Father. 
Christians believe that God did all that. And there's only one reason why. He was motivated by love. Oh, I, I got carried away as I answered her question. Love for those who would make themselves into his enemies. That's who he did this for. This is what the Bible says. We do believe it. You know, listen, this is why I get emotional and moved when I think of it. There's two reasons. The first is about me, and this is the smaller reason. It is that I see myself there with that baby, and I think the omnipotent God humiliated himself for me because he loved me. And that's small. The much bigger thing for me is that I stand in a room with this many brilliant and bright people. Some of you have become friends of me already, and I get to say to you that he humbled himself for you, for us. And not for us alone, but for our enemies and for all of the people around us. What if that's true? Well, then it's time for us to, to do this. And this is what I want us to do in this season, for us to be clear and aware of our own pictures of how we want to make God and set them on one side and leave them there for a little bit and then come to the other side to the Christmas story and let it tell us what God is like. To come back, and this is what we'll do next week, to Mary and imagine ourselves into her position and see what it teaches us about God that he would choose to come into the world through one person like her. And then to pay attention to the Magi in the weeks ahead and ask, if these men are far away from God but open their eyes and he shows them enough so that they can find him, what does it teach us about our own searching for God? Uh, to stand in the temple with Simeon who rejoices at the birth of Jesus and just exclaims, God has finally consoled his people Israel. And with, with us all together to sit and know how God has comforted the world in Jesus Christ. Oh, I can't wait to talk about that. And then on Christmas Eve, with you and maybe some of your friends, to be with the shepherds when the angel comes and proclaims that Jesus is good news of great joy for all people. For who? For some people? For the ones who believe properly? For the ones who go to the right church? For the ones who have the right understanding of God? No, for all people. Yeah? Yes. Oh, I can't wait. And I want to set that before you, and I want to know it for this reason. Because when we see what God is really like, it changes everything. And by everything, I mean everything. I mean our own understanding of ourselves and the way we live in the world. And then, and this is what I hope for more than anything, and then it changes the gathering of people that come together in churches like Renaissance so that when we have the right vision about what God is like, God uses us in the world to be the bearers of his peace and grace and love and light in a world that is so desperately in need of it. And that's about us all together and it's about every one of us individually. Do I hope for too much when I hope for that? Do you think I do? Because if you do, I'm ready to fight you. <laughs> in, in like a good way. I know some of the adults now who were in that basement in 2002 when I read that story. I've had the unique privilege, and it really is, of watching how God has actually changed the lives of some of those young people so that they've become adults who live in the world magnificently. There was a girl there that night named Kathy. She was a sophomore. I had not talked to her on that night. It was a full year 
because we did this every week. We gathered and talked about Jesus with these students. It was a full year before I talked to her ever. And it was one evening after a gathering together like that where she came up to me and said, excuse me, Christian, would it be okay with you if we got together and talked one afternoon? I have some things I want to share. I said, yeah, that'd be great. We met at a little park by the river in Rumson, close to where I lived. We sat on a bench. She sat beside me. I had no idea what she was going to say. She was very, very shy. She said to me, Christian, about two months ago, you read, you read the words from Psalm... Oh, man, I get emotional. Excuse me. <laughs> you read the words from Psalm 27, verse 10, where the, where the psalmist says, if my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take me up. She said, what you don't know about me is my father and mother forsake me every day. I think she was from a family that was abusive. As shy as she was, she was even smarter. She said, I have decided that God is the father who has taken me up and I want to thank you for helping me see that. I was so happy. She said, I want... She's a very unemotional person. She said, I want to use the gifts that God has given me to help make the world a better place because I think that's what my heavenly father would want me to do. After senior year, she received one of 12 presidential scholarships to attend the, the school of her choice. She could go wherever she wanted in the country. Very few of these scholarships were given out. She chose to go up to Boston. In her sophomore year, I received an email from her. Christian, I love school. I found a group of Christians who gather together each week to listen to the scriptures and understand what God is like. It's the best. I'm trying to decide to do now what, what I will with my life after I graduate. And for me, it's up in the air between medical school and theology. I can't yet decide which one would be a better use of my gifts. That summer, she took an internship in South Africa, working at an AIDS clinic. She wrote to me, this summer I held children in my arms as they died. I know what God wants me to do. I want to fight that disease. She finished with very high honors. She received a full ride at a little, little medical school called Harvard. She went on uh, to study medicine at Harvard. After her second year, she went to LA and she worked in a clinic on Skid Row, set up for people who were either addicted to drugs, had mental illness, usually a combination uh, of both, and then who were suffering from some kind of debilitating disease. She wrote to me about that. I've never felt closer to God than when I'm with those who are needy and I'm able to heal them and work on their uh, suffering in God's name because God has done that for us. She's gone on to uh, work at a hospital and to do great things. And I don't think it would be an oversimplification to say at the heart of it for Kathy was the moment where she was able to see what God is like. And that's why, listen, that's why I hope that as we together come before the stories that are told at Christmas time, that we can get a picture of what God is like. Uh, there's more than one Kathy in here. I know it. I'm absolutely sure of it. Uh, someone who will uh, get a sense of what God is like and then their life will go in a new direction and, and the world will benefit from it. And not only a singular, but I also believe this about Renaissance Church and it's the thing that made me so thankful uh, this past Thursday when I thought about us together. Why I like my job. 
because I get to be the one who stands with you and who says with you, how about getting a clear sense together about what God is like and then watching what God does for and through us as a church altogether? That's what I want to do. I want to do that in this season, in the Christmas season. And then I want to watch and see what God does. And will you come with me on that journey? What? Ah, <laughs> uh, I love it. Let's pray. Let's ask God to be with us. God, we know that when we pray and ask you to be with us, we're not asking for something which you've not already done. We trust and believe that in Jesus and that baby, you came to be with the world. You came to descend low to be with us in everything that we will ever face so that we can find in you help in our time of need when we struggle and, ch and are challenged with life, uh, which is too much. We can trust that we don't face anything which you haven't already faced. God, we want to see you. We want to see who you are clearly and we want to see you so that we ourselves can be changed. So that we can come and with shock and wonder see the glory of Emmanuel, that you would come and be with us. And that so seeing you, we would let you come into our hearts and change us so that we would become different people. God, I know that here among us, there are people from a wide range of places, especially in regards to faith. I thank you that we're with each other even as we're different. And I pray very simply that each one of us would be open now and that our heart's cry would be, O come, O come, Emmanuel, so that we ourselves would be ransomed from our captivity and set free. And then all together as your people, we would be built up so that we can serve your good purposes in the world. And we pray for this in the name of Jesus, God, the God who saves, the one who is with us. In his name we pray, amen.